If you're a guest, my name's Kelly. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Good to hear you singing. Two weeks ago today, we celebrated Jesus' resurrection, Easter morning. After he was raised, he appeared to his disciples a number of times over the course of a 40-day period. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene early Easter morning, then later that night to all his disciples as they were gathered together. Although Thomas wasn't there, he was absent. Eight days later, when all the disciples were together again, this time Thomas with them, Jesus appeared to the disciples again, offered his hands, his side to Thomas so that Thomas could touch the wounds. And of course, famously, Thomas immediately believed. Then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus went on to appear to 500 of his followers, at one time, in fact. And uh, Paul says that some of those, while he was writing, some of those 500 were still alive. In other words, you could go verify. These folks have seen the Savior raised. During his last appearance to his disciples, at the end of the 40-day period, he gives some instructions to them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he ascends into the heavens right before their eyes. Here's the record of that event in the book of Acts. After he said this, those instructions, wait in Jerusalem for the gift my father will give you, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. The ascension of Jesus is an important event in history because we aren't left wondering where Jesus is today. Or we're also not left wondering what's the next event in the plan of redemption. When will we see Jesus again? We know that the Son of God is with the Father God in heaven, that he'll return to earth in the same way that his first disciples saw him go into the heavens. We'll see him return from the heavens to claim his church. What might it be like when he returns? What can we expect from that event? Turn with me for those questions to Luke 17. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read Jesus' own description of his return. The next time that his followers can expect to see him. Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you'll not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. 
But first, he, that is the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day of Noah, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like, exactly like, Jesus says. This on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in a field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. If you're an underliner, those are the three words I would encourage you to underline. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord? The disciples ask. He replied, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Matt talked about references in the book of First Chronicles to the kingdom as uh, David marched the ark back into the midst of the people with great celebration, singing. And in the book of Revelation, at the consummation of all things, the end of time, right? God's kingdom being established with great celebration, with singing. As we wait upon the kingdom to be established, as we pray that his kingdom would come, we sing. We sing a new song. We sing a song of redemption. We sing a song of salvation. The prayer, your kingdom come, is made by millions of Christians daily. We pray it weekly, Wednesday nights from 7 to 8 as a congregation during a time of prayer. You're more than welcome to join us. Everybody's welcome. An hour of prayer built around the Lord's Prayer, part of which is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But when the Pharisees asked Jesus exactly, exactly, when will this happen? When will the kingdom come? He gives them a a two-pronged answer. He said, it's here now, even in your midst, and it'll come when he returns, when Jesus returns. This answer, this two-pronged answer captures what is described by theologians as the now and not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is both here now and not yet fully come. What does this mean? Well, it means that in one sense, the kingdom has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. But in another sense, the kingdom has not yet fully arrived and we're waiting upon that moment, which will happen when Christ returns. What is described in this passage as the day of the Son of Man. For this reason, Jesus compared the kingdom to a couple things, trying to help us to understand it in his teachings. He compared it to seed that was sown in a field, which grows over time and is then harvested. In fact, the picture of Jesus' second coming, his return, right? His first advent, born in Bethlehem. His second advent, like lightning flashing in the sky. 
The second advent of Christ, the return of Christ is often compared to a harvest. When humanity will give an account for our lives, the slow-growing reality of seeds planted, watered, nurtured over time by life in the soil, and then finally harvested, it matches well with Jesus' description that the kingdom is not something that you can observe. I planted seeds in a garden about a week ago, but there's no reason for me to sit in the garden waiting. I'm eager to see them grow. I want to see the harvest come, but there's no, no reason for me to sit there in the garden and wait because the growth of plants isn't something you can actually observe moment to moment. It's imperceivable. Jesus also compared his kingdom to leaven that works its way through a loaf of bread gradually but thoroughly affecting the entire loaf of bread. His point is in these descriptions that the process of God's kingdom, kingdom's coming has already started. Frankly, the kingdom of God was established on earth at creation. It's already started. It's in your midst, Jesus says. When God called Abraham, when God gave the covenant law to Moses, when God established David on his throne, when the ark was marched back into Jerusalem, these are kingdom events. When Christ came, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants, there's a time ahead when the loaf will be fully risen. That's what leaven does. It works its way through a loaf, causes it to rise. It's ready to eat. So what is the kingdom of God? How can it be both now and not yet? How can it be both in our midst and coming at a future date? Well, the kingdom of God is simply the rule of God. His sovereign authority that's exercised over all of creation and his will being carried out by his people. And since Jesus is the king, when you talk about kingdoms, you've got a king. Since Jesus is the king, the kingdom is wherever Jesus is. So he says to the Pharisees, it's in your midst. Wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom, which is why he preached the good news of the kingdom. The king has come. It's good news. The fulfillment of all Old Testament covenant, the final sacrifice for sin is going to be made. And he urged people to submit to his authority, receive his care as king. Even today, that's the message that the church preaches. I pray we hear that message this morning in song, in sermon. The king has come and all people are to submit to his authority in every area of their lives and receive his care. This is why, in fact, when Jesus healed people, if you read the, the Gospels closely, he described it as the kingdom coming upon them. When he healed them, the kingdom coming upon them. That is, his authority, his uh, governance, his sovereign care of someone as creator and sustainer of all things is seen clearly in the healing act as the body responds to the one who made it. We'll pray at the end of the service for any that want healing prayer. There's a final song. You'd be welcome to come down. Jesus is still healing people. He's still demonstrating his sovereign authority over all of creation. The kingdom is coming. God's answering the prayer. Thy kingdom come. 
thy will be done. Now this means that not only is the kingdom wherever the king is, but by extension, the kingdom's wherever the king's people are. Follow me here. Wherever the citizens of the kingdom are living, there the kingdom has come. Those submitted to King Jesus are citizens of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul describes us as ambassadors of Christ. We represent him in a world waiting upon his return. We beckon others to submit to his reign, his rule, his authority. We want to see others receive his care, even this morning. And since the king is coming again, we need to be ready for his return. Are you ready for the return of Christ? The best way to be ready for Jesus' return is to understand the nature of his return, the purpose of his return, the events that will unfold at his return. For example, Jesus' return will be public and undeniable. The second advent will not be like the first in many ways. One of the ways that Jesus' return to earth will not be like his first arrival as a little baby in Bethlehem is that it will not be subtle, it will not be quiet, it will not be hidden away. When Jesus returns, no one will have to search for him like the Magi had to search for him the first time. Born in Bethlehem, a small, insignificant village on the outskirts of the Roman Empire on the way to nowhere. That was his first advent. His second advent will be like lightning that flashes, thunder that claps and brightens the entire sky. It'll be public. It will gain the attention of everyone quickly. This means as followers of Jesus, we don't have to wonder about rumors surrounding the end times. People will tell you, Jesus says, verse 23, there he is or here he is. Don't go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. In other words, don't get caught up in reading the times. The unfolding of events of history in an effort to predict the return of Jesus We should read the news in order to be the best ambassadors that we can be. But we already know Jesus is coming. We don't know when he's coming, but just before his ascension, in fact, Jesus told his disciples, it's not for us to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. I grew up in a church culture that was constantly trying to tie the daily news to biblical prophecy in an effort to create urgency around Jesus' return. I'm sure they meant well, but as it turns out, Mikhail Gorbachev wasn't the Antichrist. Our focus isn't to be on predicting the exact time or guessing about when, but rather our focus is to be ready and waiting. Our focus is to be upon the Savior and the certainty that he's coming for his church. Our focus is to be ready, and sadly, many won't be ready, according to Jesus' own words. Jesus' return will find many unprepared. And of course, we don't want to be unprepared. That's why we're in church this morning, right? We have some listening 
online. We live stream the nine o'clock. We don't want to be unprepared. We, we want to be ready. We, don't, we want to be looking forward to that moment. The early church had a saying, Maranatha, which come quickly, Lord Jesus. Expressed an eagerness that the clouds would open and Christ our Savior would descend. We're to be praying that God's kingdom would come as we've been instructed. We're to be anticipating our saviors, our Savior breaking through time and space. To drive this point home, Jesus gives two Old Testament examples of folks being unprepared. Unprepared for God's judgment. The first story is one with which most of us are very familiar, the story of God saving Noah and his family during a flood. Although it took Noah years to build the ark, it appears that no one heeded the warning of a man building a boat in the desert. An odd activity for sure. You know, Christians are boat builders. We live in the desert. If you don't think we live in the desert, just look at the events unfolding in Minneapolis. I heard someone say this morning that the prediction, culturally, socially, is this summer will be harder for America than last summer was with the demonstrations. We live in a desert and we are boat builders. We're preparing for Christ to return and the judgment with it. And we're, we're doing our best to be ambassadors. Well, Jesus says that they kept right on eating and drinking and marrying without any concern for their sinfulness in Noah's day. No one heeded the warning of coming judgment. Noah, why are you building that boat? A preacher of righteousness, the New Testament calls him. Jesus' point mentioning this story is that Many will have that same experience when he arrives a second time. People will be asleep in their beds, walking their dogs, watching television, fixing dinner, unprepared for God's judgment. The second Old Testament story is the destruction of Sodom, and Jesus' point is the same. Just as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says, the people of Sodom were going about their business when fire rained down from heaven, consuming the city. Of course, it's not just that Jesus' return will surprise many and find them unprepared. For those who are unprepared, they will suffer loss. In their unpreparedness, they're going to experience loss, and that'll happen to many. Prayed this morning, prayed throughout the week about a message on judgment. Not easy to offer a message of judgment. Even as ambassadors of Christ, I know what it is to be at work and in your neighborhoods, at schools, where your kids are going to school. It's hard to bring up the concept of judgment. You know, judgment, judgment's needed because justice is needed. As the people of God, we should be praying for justice in our nation. Justice, as Derek, and I'm not sure how to say his last name, Siobhan, Shavin. The police officer being tried for George Floyd's death. We should be praying for justice. We want accurate judgments. We want mercy. We want justice. We see that in Christ's death. Many are going to be unprepared for Christ's return, and they'll suffer loss in the judgment that comes with his return. Jesus makes this point. He puts a very fine point on it. 
by offering one of the shortest verses in all of Scripture, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Again, if you're an underliner, that's the message for this morning. Lot's wife and her husband had been spared from the destruction of the city of Sodom. Two angels had shown up in the city, assessed, judged, and ushered them out of the city safely. But giving them some very specific instructions as they helped them out of the city, the instructions they were given are on the screen. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away, lest you be caught up in the judgment that's coming. Lot's wife looked back. I picture her holding her husband's hand. They're running. She stops, pulls against the force to get out of the city, looks back. She's running. She stopped. And the justice of God was swift in her life. Genesis 19, verse 26, details that she was turned into a pillar of salt right there on the spot. In other words, even after she had safely made it out of the city, she came under God's judgment for her disobedience. It's a startling story. Reminds me of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. A New Testament story. This is an Old Testament story. A New Testament story in which the people of God drop dead when confronted with their sin. I want to pause here for just a moment and point out that Jesus is encouraging us to remember God's swift judgment against a single individual for their disobedience. Jesus is bringing this up. Now, I want to pause and I want to point that out because many claim that Jesus' life and teaching shouldn't be lumped in with the Old Testament stories about God's wrath. Many want to divorce the Old and New Testaments, the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the prophets of the Old Testament. They want to claim that Jesus' life and teachings were all about love and mercy, while the Old Testament is about God's wrath and judgment. This is a terrible oversimplification of both the Old and New Testaments. God's love and mercy, as well as his wrath towards sin and the certainty of judgment against sinners, runs throughout Old and New Testaments. It's true that in Jesus' death, we see the love and the mercy of God shown toward all sinners. But in his death, we see, without a doubt, the judgment of God, the wrath of God towards human sin. So what are we to remember about Lot's wife? Well, certainly we're to remember her disobedience. Certainly we're to remember the swift judgment that her disobedience brought upon her. There's more to remember than simply her disobedience, though. After all, disobedience to the command of the angels not to look back is only the fruit of the problem. It's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem has to do with her love for her life in Sodom. She looks back for a reason. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus tells us. Then he adds some commentary to help us understand exactly what we're to remember. 
Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. There was a particular aspect of life in Sodom that she longed for. And she lost her life because of that. I would imagine fire falling from heaven is somewhat like a train wreck. You can't help but look. That's not why she looked back. She's not looking back as a righteous person on the judgment of God and taking warning. That's not what she's looking back at. The commentary of Christ is whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. That follows right on the hills of remember Lot's wife. She lost her life. There's something about her life she loved. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. What are we to remember about Lot's wife? We're to remember that she was almost saved, but not quite. I have a sense you're listening. She was almost saved from Sodom, but not quite, because her love of life in that city and all that it represented caused her to look back in disobedience. She loved the city of Sodom and the sinful life that was there more than she loved obedience to God, life with God, more than she loved the kingdom. That was the question that started this narrative. She looked back, which meant she identified with the citizens of Sodom more than the citizens of the kingdom of God. Folks, what kingdom do we most closely identify with? I hope, it's, I hope it's King Jesus. I hope it's our, citizen, our citizenry in heaven that is our primary identification. She looked back because she identified with Sodom. She identified with what was behind her, what she was being saved from, more than she identified with what she was being saved to. Rather than exiting the city thankfully for her life, obediently, she grudgingly exited the city, longed to go back. It leads to the loss of her life, a swift and immediate judgment. And in remembering, if we're to remember Lot's wife, what are we to do with remembering? Most simply put, we're to love obedience to God, love obedience to God more than the love of our own lives. That's, in fact, the best way to prepare, be prepared for Jesus' return, to be cultivating a love for the king and the kingdom. For some reason, I, I feel prompted to mention money here. It's not in my notes. Store up treasure in heaven, Christ told us, for there your heart will be. Some of us, I'm afraid, it's easy in our culture, the Western burbs, to store up treasure here, to love life here, to, to invest here. The best way to be prepared for Jesus' return is to love obedience 
to Jesus, the King. The best way to ensure that we don't suffer loss, that we're prepared, is to cultivate obedience. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, same book, same Gospel, right? Chapter 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must do a couple things, must deny themselves, must take up their cross daily, follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. We just read this in chapter 17. Good teachers repeat their themes, right? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole of Sodom and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The whole of the Western burbs. What good is it to gain the entirety of the American dream and lose your life? We're all tempted to love the sinfulness in this world more than the cross of Christ, more than obedience to Christ, more than following after Christ. We're all tempted to live for self rather than to live for the king. If you're following Jesus this morning on the authority of God's word, do not look back. Don't long for old, sinful lifestyles from which God is saving you. Don't look back. So often I feel like in my life, and we all have our favorite sins, the sin in which God is saving me from, I want to look back, just a little bit of comfort. And then it brings death in my life. Do, do deny yourself and your sinful longings and take up your cross and follow the example of Jesus and you're guaranteed life eternal. I'm afraid that for far too many Christians that we live like Lot's wife. We, ex we accept the escape plan. Get me out of this city. We accept the escape plan. We're eager to be saved from the destruction that's coming when Jesus returns, but then we live our lives looking back. Longing for sin. Storing up for ourselves treasure in this world. She was almost saved, but not quite. We can either live for ourselves or we can live for the king. What are your favorite parts of the sinful elements of the Western burbs? First John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
John goes on in that passage to describe the things in the world that we might fall in love with and give our lives to. Lust, pride, possessions, position. She was almost saved, but not quite. We live for King Jesus not by looking back at what he's saving us from, but looking forward to all that he's saving us to. We love Jesus by receiving the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us at the time of our new birth and employing them as ambassadors of Christ. Going into the fields, back to the seed metaphor. We're part of the seed scattering effort. We want to see the slow, consistent growth of the kingdom of God in our neighborhoods and in our schools. We're part of that effort. Luke 10.2, ask that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the field. That's us. We're, we're the answers to our own prayer. We love Christ as we employ our gifts as ambassadors, as we open our mouths, heralding the good news. We practice that every Sunday morning in this room. That's why Matt gives us a a call to worship that says, sing a new song, open your mouths, practice opening your mouth for the gospel in this room together. If you can't boldly, courageously sing about the good news of Christ in this room, how will we ever open our mouths out there? We love Christ, the life he's saving us to as we invest in his kingdom. Cherish our citizenship in heaven. Carry our cross, denying ourself. Are you ready for Jesus' return? Perhaps the best thing to come out of COVID so far is the sobering nature of its effect upon us as as a humanity. COVID has clearly demonstrated that we are not invincible but are frail. We are in need of redemption. If you want to be ready, then acknowledge the king. Look forward to his coming. Remember Lot's wife. And say goodbye and be done with your old patterns of sin. And say yes to Christ. Go all in, as a good friend of mine would say, following after Jesus. Let me pray for us toward that end. Heavenly Father, I'm not going to pretend that there isn't some of Lot's wife in the reality of what she did in my own life. I thank you for your mercy on us as a people. I have every confidence that Jesus brought up Lot's wife for this very reason. I think of Demas, who in the New Testament abandoned Paul in in the mission work of the kingdom, abandoned his ambassadorial call because he loved the world. 
Father, I pray that we would see with increasing clarity that the sinfulness of this world is not going to meet our needs. It only brings death and destruction. I pray that we would look forward with increasing resolve as your people. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.